Hi, I'm Mitchell Bishop. And I'm Michael Anthony. Welcome to Art Holes. This is an art and art history podcast with two people who have absolutely zero authority to speak on these topics. Art Holes! Mitch, it's uh, it's our inaugural episode. Are you excited? I'm very excited. I do not know what to expect. It's uh, it's going to be a fun journey, I think, as we, uh, as we, as we stumble like a toddler into the, the abyss of our own ignorance. We got a little white wine. So, the first artist we're going to discuss is Pablo Picasso. Boom. But we're only going to talk about Picasso's origin story. Okay. For, for a couple of reasons. One, it's his life is so long and it's so dense. We'd be here for 16 episodes, and I don't think people know enough about us or care enough about us to commit to that long of a story. It's good to change it up. So the other reason we're not going to talk about the entire story is a source issue. So the main source we're going to be using for this first series, Picasso's origin story, is a book called The Life of Picasso, The Prodigy, 1881 to 1906 by John Richardson. So we have to talk about the source before we can even get into the story. Okay. Uh, John Richardson is Sir John Richardson now. He was knighted for his work as Picasso's biographer. Mm -hmm. He had access to Picasso for a number of years. He was a friend of Picasso. He knew him. Picasso actually wanted to tattoo. Uh, Richardson got a tattoo one time, and Picasso got mad. He's like, dude, I would have tattooed you if you let me. If I, Yeah, could you imagine? Wow. So, How old is this guy Richardson now? He's probably 70, maybe so he, 75. So he hit him in the sweet spot. Yeah. He got tor- the stories. And also was around uh, family, friends, had access to documents. So especially when we're talking about very early on in Picasso's life, John Richardson is the guy. Right. But he's only on the third, or rather he's completed three out of the four books he planned. Okay. So while later on in the story we can use more sources, for the purposes of this story, it really is a John Richardson-backed piece. Mm-hmm. So he's our he he's sort of our um, he's our gatekeeper guy. He's to, our uh, gatekeeper as as we sort of get into this. Great. Um, the reason why I picked Picasso first was because he's the one artist that I could identify by name, and also if I rolled into a, a museum and you see a painting with the nose, it's all like jacked up over here, and the right. eyes are all like Meh. like I you could tell that's a Picasso. Right. But I had absolutely no understanding of what this guy's history was. No, inter- I knew nothing about him. So we're going to dive into the origin story of Picasso right now. Ooh-wee. Let's do it. But we can't talk about Picasso without talking about the setting first. Okay. The setting is important. I can hear it. I can hear the birds. Oh, oh, it's so nice. I can hear the music. It's very warm. Yeah. The story begins in the city of Malaga Mm -hmm. in the Andalusian region of Spain. Malaga was founded by the Phoenicians in around 770 BC. Mm-hmm. And has a recorded history that goes back almost 2,800 years. Okay. It's, uh, I'm from Schenectady. So, I mean, I'm pretty sure that right. place was started in 1972 during a poker game. Yeah. Like, just the idea <laughs> of this is not something that I'm familiar with. Yeah. It was a major commercial and cultural port that connected other ancient Mediterranean cities. Mm-hmm. Malaga is the southernmost larger city in Europe. And Andalusia and Malaga are located at the southernmost region of Spain. It is Mediterranean. It and is beautiful. Oh, and it's the, the warm weather and the food. It's very and art cheap. It's like cheap too, right? Yeah. Oh, and it's a, just a very I'm passionate going that, city. I'm going next week. Yeah, <laughs> take a trip. <laughs> Andalusia, that region, is the birthplace of flamenco dancing. Oh. So that's the kind of place we're talking about. Oh, yeah. I always mm. thought that was a dance. But apparently it's more of a like a folkloric tradition. Oh, cool. Combination of music, dance, and it tells an intricate story. Oh. This is the the dancing and the clapping and the stomping of the feet. Yeah, yeah. I know it's flamenco dancing, yeah. but as I didn't know that that was like an actual Isn't that crazy? style I, of art. Yeah, actually, I had no idea. Interesting. You, I'm already learning new things. We're going to learn we're a ton in, here. We're in five... We're 
four minutes into this, and I'm learning so many new things. Malaga hit its cultural apex in August 10th, on August 10th of 1960, when it produced Antonio Banderas. Uh, yep, who would eventually star in the 1995 film Assassins with Sylvester Stallone and Julianne Moore. One I the, remember it. I remember it coming out, but I don't know if I ever saw it. Oh you, oh, you need to see it. So he doesn't speak a whole lot during the movie except to say the word fuck, and mm-hmm. he says it about 418 <laughs> times, and he goes full Nick Cage. It's pretty fantastic. It's oh. not winning any Oscars. But that's the kind of, like, if you want to have an iconography of what Malaga looks like, right. it's Antonio Banderas. Yeah, yeah, just a bunch of Antonio Banderas is walking Antonio Banderas is running around, women in skirts, doing flamenco, it's beautiful. God. When you're dealing with a culture that can trace its roots back 2,800 years, there's often a premium that's placed on individual family history mm-hmm. and using that history to ensure a continued prosperity of inherited wealth. Okay. And this couldn't be more true than in Malaga in Spain at that time. Naming mechanisms in Spain were very important, and mm-hmm. they helped distinguish you in an aristocracy in the bourgeois class. And the names matter and what you carry down based on marriage. So you also want to marry somebody with a really good name. Right. The oldest male takes the father's name as his primary surname. Well, the next male takes the mother's last name as the primary surname. Mm. And you want to marry equal or greater, whatever the the class structure is. Mm -hmm. Very, very high stakes. And can those high stakes lead to incest? Yes, they can. Mm -hmm. Always, uh, it's always, there's always that tinge. There's always that like pie chart of the like small little slice that's always like, and there's always this like incestual part. It's laziness, right? Like if you want to ensure that you're going to marry somebody that's, they just agreed that like marrying a cousin wasn't so bad at it, some point. Exactly. It just wasn't it's the as, European stuff. It wasn't as big of a deal and it's and I don't want to give anything away too much, but it's there's It's funny cuz in Europe it's like the we think of incest is like almost like a royalty thing and in the United States incest is like Alabama. a rural thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not, not take too many shots at Alabama. But <laughs> I didn't say but I didn't say Alabama. You uh, said Alabama. That's true. Uh Picasso's family could, it could technically trace its lineage back to 1481 to a guy named Juan de Leon. And Juan de Leon was a wealthy landowner and a renowned knight. So this is somebody of that rich class, probably a horrible person. I mean, you're Ah. talking about like many of the uh, awful wars of the 1400s. It's sad though, because when you said that, I was thinking like, you know, nice like music, like. You know, yeah. and like and like he's sitting on a horse and stuff like that. I think there was slaves. something very noble. I, I'm, yeah. I think there was slaves. I think there was a lot of a, a lot of deaths to build this this wealth. That's too bad. But at some point around the 17th century, some idiot got in there and married for love, mm-hmm. and the Ruiz name snuck in and changed the family's prestige forever. Okay. Because now we've got the Ruiz as the primary surname. It's way harder to trace back to the Leon. Mm-hmm. And eventually we water down the De Leon name and get to a Jose Ruiz, oh, who would no. eventually become Pablo Picasso's Whoa. father. Okay. And Jose Ruiz is arguably one of the most boring Spanish names of all time. It's a very generic name, uh, requires a lot of explanation as to who you're related to, why it mattered, 
and there's gotta be a ton of Jose Ruiz's, so it's hard to trace down. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're under the age of 40 and you're named John Smith today. Right. It's, your parents loved you, I'm sure, but they were not very excited to Is have you. Is that still true? Because I feel like my generation, yeah, like uh, over 40 if you're John Smith. If you're like Joe Smith, then you're like, your parents, you're like, I'm the only Joe Smith in my class. But when I was growing up, there were like 12 Joe Smiths. That's a good point. You know? If So if you're between the ages of 40 and like 18... Your parents probably were not that stoked. They weren't putting yeah. in any effort. <laughs> right, right, right. Jose Ruiz was born in Malaga in 1838 to Diego Ruiz and Maria Blasco. Mm. At this point, Malaga is a relatively small city. It's no longer that ancient Mediterranean hub like it was in the ancient world. Think of a city like St. Louis, or once mm. it was the gateway to the West in the 1904 Summer Olympics, and now they can't even keep an uh, NFL team. Right, right. It's just a different... And love <laughs> love so St. Love St. Louis. Oh, yeah, do you? Big, big fan <laughs> of... That shout sounded out, really... Uh, shout out to all our future St. Louis listeners. No, my God. The Ruiz is such a dig. Yeah, I was, was, yeah, I was actually trying dig. to think of a city. And now they can't even hang on to like a football team. It's, San Diego has a football team, and they don't even. No, San Diego does oh, not have a football team. Oh my god, team. I totally forgot they about that. They can't hang three, on to a football team. They came a year later. Well, they hung on for like one more year. St. Louis, San Diego. If it makes you feel better, we're probably not going to be supporting those teams pretty heavily that much either. You know, LeBron's coming, so that's everyone's going to go back to basketball. And that's a good Lakers, point. We're going to care about different things. Yeah, no one's going to care about football. So at this point, the Ruizes are still a, a relatively well-to-do family. They're well-regarded. They're super bougie, but they're not very rich and influential anymore. Diego and Maria had three sons and three daughters. The whole family structure was controlled and run by Diego, the patriarch, because that's just how things happened back then. Mm-hmm. Jose's brothers grew up to be very successful. His brother, Pablo, became a, a bishop or some sort of high-ranking religious figure. Wait, wait, he has a brother named Pablo? He has a brother named Pablo. Oh, interesting. And he also has a younger brother named Salvador, who became one of Malaga's best doctors. Hmm. As for Jose's sisters, this is 19th century Andalusia, so it wasn't really that awesome for women. Right. Uh, Andalusia is the birthplace of the idea of machismo, the exaggerated hyper-masculinity. They could trace the birthplace of machismo? This idea of machismo? To this place? Is this region of Spain. This this idea, it's exa- yeah, that's where it comes that's from. That's so ridiculous, it's but okay. Crazy. I'm there's, going with you. Um, there's an, is another, I think it's Caballero Cidad, there's, a, there's another form no, of... No, we created machismo. Yeah, we, well, we perfected it by being assholes. <laughs> no way. That's such a random thing to like be able to claim, you know. It's it's not a great thing to be able to claim. It's like how everything's like a, a national holiday nowadays, like National Dog Day, National Corgi Day. This is National Be Terrible to Women Day. Yeah, that's sort this of what is this national is. National machismo. Yeah. We created it. It's ours. In Malaga for women, the cultural norm was mostly to be a housewife and raise the kids. And if you were a sibling, like Jose and Pablo and and in the Salvador's sisters, mm-hmm. you were expected to be at home even with the extended family. So you would move into an extended family member's house and until you were married off. Like you were part of that family and you helped take care of the kids. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, part of your family, your own family's yeah, extended so family? Exactly. So you would move into your brother's house and help take care of his kids. That's until you were married until off. Until you were married off. And if you weren't married off, you just would be an old spinster in that family. The other viable option was prostitution. Terrible. As for Jose himself, uh, he was incredibly spoiled and mostly useless. 
He lived at home well into his 30s, and his unmarried sisters doted on him constantly. No way. Well, that was the thing. It was the men were, the men did everything. The men were the primary breadwinners. The men yeah, were yeah. the structure so of the household. So he had it all already. He just he wasn't doing shit, and everyone did things for him. Uh, he loved going to brothels, bullfights, yeah. and getting drunk. Hmm. That was pretty much Jose. Yeah, and every it, man. Yeah, <laughs> at that, yeah, that time, it was it was it, that was not an odd thing for him to have done back then. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. he did it into his thirties was the part that was slightly concerning. I mean, just that he just lived at home. Yeah, he was a guy that lived at home and just man, he in liked, that time, and he, people were like, "You're awesome." He liked good times, man. Jose Jeez. liked going to bullfights. Didn't want any responsibilities. Drank. Jose was part of a tertulia in Malaga, and a tertulia is a very upper crusty term. It's a, a group of core friends who were primarily artists, politicians, intellectual, business owners, almost always Lazy men. couch potatoes. Lazy, a lot, well, it's split. Uh-huh. And we'll get into Tertullius oh, really? a little okay. bit later when we talk, because it's, oh. it's usually split between very, very successful, talented people uh-huh. and rich hangers-ons who are like sort of useless. It's almost like an entourage kind of thing. Right. So the, the Tertullias, all these guys would sit around, drink together, discuss art and cultural issues, carouse all night, and go to bullfights together. It was right. your running crew. Yeah, that's like, uh, it's best to be one of those, I guess, you know? Or be a part of it. Or be a part of it, yeah, that's what I mean, like, one side or the other, you know? You just don't have any, any women giving you gripe about <laughs> things? I hate the idea of a trigger warning, but we should just put it out there that if it's not going to be good for women... In these uh, stories of these artists, in this, it's it's not going to be. They're bad dudes. We think the artists nowadays are bad dudes, but back then, it's back, it it's, gets the worse it gets. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, there may be a, also a narcissism to artists in general that might make them. I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll see a pattern. We'll I don't know see, shit about it. We're gonna build a person based on his geography, his familial <laughs> history, the culture. His childhood, uh-huh. and we're going to show you the type of guy that Picasso <laughs> He had is. it all. Jose's Tertulia loved to hang out at their favorite cafe, Cafe Chinitas. In the afternoons, the Chinitas would put on cockfighting for everyone to enjoy. Awesome. And well, at well, night... Mid-afternoon cockfight. Oh, it's something to do. Yeah. At night, women would wear cloaks with nothing on underneath and mm. put on banana shows. Mm. Tell me uh, about these banana shows. Well, it was a hard thing to Google. Uh, but from what I can understand, a banana show is... Because it means something now that it didn't mean back yeah, then. Yeah, back then it was I, it's a consolador planatos, kind of a banana dildo situation. It's in the same vein <laughs> wait, as... Wait, wait, wait. It's in the same vein as a ping pong ball, sh- ball show. Wait, wait. Banana dildo. They would take the bananas and they would perform a banana show. Uh-huh. Okay. And I'm sure for a couple extra bucks, you could do like a Lady in the Tramp pasta style... B- banana eating contest. Yeah, I mean, it's there. You have to. Also, I would feel like that's just the obvious thing. I mean, maybe there's no there. records of it. You, know, you have to go like there. Also, if you are if you're not selling banana bread the next day, no, you're that's a terrible business. Is it? Yeah, because people are gonna know. People are gonna know of where course, those. It's a wink and a nod. I mean, but it's waste not want not too. That's you know, and that those were the times. Oh, for sure. Well, also in Malaga. This was an economic downturn around this time. Oh, you definitely made banana bread. So there's thing. banana bread happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, just uh, good business. Oh, it's good business sense. Jose had somewhat of a natural talent for art. He tried to be a professional artist, but only really painted pigeons and doves. That's it. So if you wanted a house or a portrait, and go fuck yourself. Yeah, don't go to Jose. No, you're getting birds. But he was known for painting them in these really schmaltzy family scenes, like almost anthropomorphizing the birds giving them these big, like, dewy eyes, and they had 
eyelashes. Oh no, it was it was it's dogs playing poker, but tackier. Do we have any pictures of this? We do. This is a painting by Jose Ruiz Blasco. Pigeons, oil on canvas, private collection. Oh yeah, I mean it's. Uh, yeah, I mean it's exactly. It's just. It's tacky. I don't know anything about yeah. yeah it's ta- about it's art, ta- it's, it's like tacky. Two pigeons sitting on a. It brings it, it brings nothing to the table. And also, if you live in a city, you see pigeons everywhere, and they suck. You also don't want to go home and see a bunch of portraits and uh, pigeons inside in your house, wearing monocles and top hats, and it's just dumb. Yeah, they're silly. They're like it was. They're cute though. I mean, I guess it's cute. I, you know, because people don't paint like that now. Then I kind of. Me, it's like my unsophisticated eye is kind of like, oh, that's good, you know. He sold about one painting. Yeah, there was only one recorded selling, one recorded sale of a painting. Jose finally got the ball rolling at thirty-seven mm-hmm. when he got his first job. He became an assistant art teacher at a school in Malaga. So they just found a shitty artist to become the art teacher. At this point, I typically think typically how. It, Yeah, I think at this point the family was getting a little sick of him not working at all. And they were like, hey, man, find something for him to do. He's like, well, I'm an artist. I got to go. I got to go. I'll I'll teach art. So when you have a bird, okay, and he's sitting on the windowsill, you put a little top hat on it and a little monocle. What you got to do is you got to give him class. You got to class him up. You got to make him a classy bird. No one wants to see a scumbag fucking bird. That's art. At 38, when his father, Don Diego, died, Jose finally moved out of the house mm. and moved right into his brother Pablo's house. He just had no interest in being an adult. This was just not a thing he wanted. No way. After I, know, I, know that, I know that guy because I am that I'm guy. that dude. <laughs> After Diego's death, Salvador became the patriarch of the Ruiz family, even though he was six years younger than Jose, which okay. is against everything... That that culture teaches you. It's the, always the oldest But they son. just knew that he was totally unable he was to... He's a dipshit. Yeah. Salvador was a successful doctor. He took in the sisters who didn't marry. Um, unmarried Andalusian women were treated like old couches. Like mm-hmm. you, when it was time to move, you, you you bring them with you or you sell them like it's... You know, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not cool. No. It, Salvador also supported Jose when he could. So Jose is basically the Fredo Corleone of this family. Right, I was your older brother, and I was stepped over. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines of any movie. It's, yeah. It's the most pathetic I've ever seen somebody on film. He is more like a, he's more like a Fredo Corleone with no ambition. What he's going to teach Pablo eventually is like, just live your life. Like, someone will take care of you. It's actually, he does have lessons to teach. He does, does he? have lessons to Yeah. How I'm to, surprised how because to he li- seems like a big kid it, right it's, now. It's not art lessons. It's lessons on how to not do anything <laughs> as an adult. Yeah. And that, that he's, you know, that's like passing it down. He's doing know? it well. <laughs> In 1879, the entire Ruiz family was thrown into turmoil. Pablo, the bishopy brother guy, he died. Oh, shit. The one he was living with. The one he was living with died, and Salvador's, the doctor, his wife died. And no one had any male heirs. So at that point, Jose was the only male heir with a reasonable chance of having a male child. So the future of the branch of that Ruiz family is sitting in that moron's balls right now. And it's just not, it's not exciting. It's not, yeah, it's not good. They've been trying to get him to date for how long at this point? 
I, I would say a year, a year or two. At this point, it, because at this point, it's an emergency. They you, have no other now option. Now he's 40 years old. Exactly. And there's no one else can have a male child. So the family burns out at that point. It's so funny what people, like how important the shit was to people at some point. Oh, it, it drives the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That concept drives the story. And it's insane. God. Okay. Jose's family tried to set him up with Amelia Picasso, mm-hmm. who was the sister of a future general. So this was huge because Amelia's family connections would have been a step up for the Ruizes and it would have been a huge step up for Jose. Plus, she was willing to marry such a colossal idiot, so that was a huge plus. <laughs> Jose instead proposed to Mario Picasso Lopez, Amelia's cousin. Whoa. Yeah. He- In... <laughs> In a in a in an unforeseen twist. Yeah, in not a great decision. Maria was far lower than the Ruizes in social hierarchy, seventeen years younger than Jose, and very poor. So Jose, he's coming in there hot, marrying for love. But, but he doesn't know what love is. It's more likely he's marrying somebody that wouldn't have the social pressure to like push him into doing anything. Interesting. You marry somebody that's not going to break your balls. I mean, that's what he was doing. He's like, oh, and they still get the money. Exactly. Um, no, they don't get the money, actually. They don't get, they, any they don't the, get money? the money. That's part of the problem is because she was a cousin, she's in a different branch of the family. But so, they are, but they are also, but the rest of the family is obligated to take care of them anyway. Not, not once you get into your own nuclear structure. So this is where uh, Jose, his like fatal flaw, basically. It was widely understood amongst both families that neither Jose nor Maria was a good catch. This was right. this was not going to go anywhere. Which great. they were probably like, this is perfect. This is great. We could do nothing. <laughs> On December so. 8th, 1880, Jose and Maria were married. She was 25 at the time, and he was 42, but he wrote down 36 on the marriage certificate <laughs> because it's Jose. Yeah. And then we got to let the baby making begin. Jose Maria immediately gets started on making more Ruizes, and almost a year later, on October 25th, 1881... They have two. ...at 11.15 p.m., Maria gives birth. But there was a problem. Oh, no. It was a a girl. It it was worse. The baby came out and was so lifeless that everyone called him a stillborn. Oh, no. The midwife left the baby in a table and went to take care of Maria, and it was sort of a bummer. Mm Hmm. But Tio Salvador was there during the birth. Malaga's famous doctor. He took one look at that baby, pulled a hefty drag from his cigar. Yes, you could smoke cigars in delivery rooms back then, and most doctors did. Up until the 70s, probably. I'm sure. It's, people still probably do it now, animals. He leaned vaping. over. The looked doc at, is like vaping. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you're ba- it's, a, it's a girl. It, it smelled this blueberry smoke. <laughs> and Tio Salvador leaned over. Blew the smoke into the newborn's face, who immediately started to scream and cry. No way. Medicine! Secondhand smoke saves babies. No way, really? The baby was alive. That's the story, or that's the fact? That's the story. That's the story. That's yeah, the, we don't really know. It's, yeah. there's, it's been the way it's been passed down. I mean, Richardson was. You got Richardson me. Richardson was pretty confident in this story. You got me. The baby was to be named. Pablo, Diego, Jose, Francisco de Paula, Juan, Nepomuceno, Maria de los Remedios, Cipriano de la Santissima, Trinidad, Ruiz, y Picasso. Now we've got a new nuclear Ruiz family. 
Over time, both maternal and paternal aunts moved in. Maria's family was Andalusian, so they also prescribed to this idea of extended family relatives doting on the oldest male. I'm not a huge fan of this custom, but... So, so, so they just... Pablo basically grew up just adored. Adored? From day one. There were these pious, religious women who would absolutely cater to every need he had. He was a god to these people. Mm -hmm. They would serve every one of his whims, which is a problematic thing to do for a child. An interesting experiment. And we'll see what happens. Yeah. As a young boy, it was said that Picasso's first word was peas, which is short for lapis, which means pencil. Either that's true and concerning from kind of like an Earl Woods perspective, like maybe no bullshit. Or it's total bullshit, and then you're just crazy stage parents, and it's weird that you're spreading that story anyway. Yeah. It was also said that that Pablo could... My kid's a genius. Yeah, kid's a genius. He said peace was his first word. Do you see how many names he had? There's no way that kid's a genius. No. Did Did you see that kid? You're telling me that the Picassos have a genius... They're yeah. lazy people. And we're not even in the Picasso world yet. We're still in the Ruiz world. It was said that Pablo could also draw before he could walk, which is another concerning statement. Draw before he could walk. That's, uh, that's also overbearing soccer dad territory. Yeah, totally. Or it's not true and you're crazy stage parents. I mean, th- these are kind of stories I feel like that get developed after the fact, after he's already like a famous painter. Exactly. But it, it tells you what their thought yeah, process like- was about this kid. The Ruizas continued the custom of men in life being sectioned off doing male things, mm-hmm. leaving the kid raising to the women. Jose did parent, but only with things he was interested in, like art and bullfights. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah, and drinking. He was still Jose. Yeah. And as soon as Pablo could walk, Jose started taking him to bullfights. And he took Pablo to a lot of bullfights. In 1884, Maria gave birth to a daughter named Lola, or as Pablo would consider her, a fierce rival. Really? Because she started to take a little bit of attention that he was getting away from his mom, the aunts, the maids, and it's now being shared with Lola. Ah. Uh. In 1887, Maria had another daughter they named Conchita. Pablo kind of liked Conchita. He was old enough at that point to understand what a baby was, okay. and he's like, that's pretty cute. And he was also old enough at the time that he didn't see her as some sort of competition. Hmm. Jose started formal art lessons for Pablo at seven. Hmm. But the Piz thing makes me doubt that. The Piz? Yeah, the Piz and the drawing before he could walk thing. They said seven, but something tells me they were cramming pencils and crayons into this kid's hands really early on. Yeah, and I mean, look, uh, a lot of kids, they paint stuff at three, four, and it looks like shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it's like, if they become a famous artist, then yeah, like they were a genius at at that age. But like, no, they're just a stupid kid. They're just kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have to remember at this point is is Tio Salvador, has two daughters. The entire Ruiz family is looking at, at Pablo at this point as their only hope for continued historical and social relevance. It's pretty sad. Pablo loved leaving home and hanging out in the gypsy section of Malaga. It was called Chupa Etira, which means suck and throw. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure we're allowed to say gypsy anymore, yeah, but yeah, since we're talking about the Gitano people in the south of Spain... Like it's not like Brad Pitt going like it's Fermi Ma. Like this is actual. If you were to if you were to actually say gypsies and meet it in a not racist way, these are gypsies. <laughs> plus one time I said it's super racist. Yeah, zero, plus one time I got taken for seventy five euros by a bunch of gypsies in a card game in um, in the Hague, Netherlands. 
That's on you, though. That was 100% That's on, on me. you. And, it was and one of those... It was I one watched of those... a dude get taken. It's weird. You get... I've been taken... It's, it's one of those moments you never forget because you're... you're dumber than you think you are. You're yeah. like, oh, I thought I was way smarter than this. I mean, I just you just taken. think like you, you get you you get a, a weird little taste and you like lose control. If they can get you close to coming, you know what just I mean? Just a and little, then, just... And then <laughs> reel you back out. Just let you go. Yeah, yeah, you'll give them all your money to get back there. Anyway, moving on. Years later, he would reminisce about the gypsies delousing one another in the sun amongst the whiff of orange flower and drying excrement. It was there that he fell in love with the Contajando Flamenco and began to smoke. I couldn't nail down his age exactly when he started smoking, but we're looking probably around the age of 10. Wow. If he wasn't hanging out with gypsies or painting, uh, Pablo loved going to the bullfights with his dad. And again, they went to a ton of bullfights. What a fucking life. Pablo's first complete painting was at nine years old called Picador. Is it still around? It's still around. We have a picture of it. And we can post that so Let's everyone can see it. It's, it's not, it's a little kid. I gotta painting. see it. Yeah, I gotta see it. This is the painting Picador right here. That's the, the it, a nine year old did? A nine year old did that. That's pretty good. It's pretty actually. good. Yeah. But it's, if you, it's, a, it's a complete painting. There's a foreground and a background and there's things going on and it's, it's not just a dude on a horse. Yeah, that's a lot better than I, I had anticipated, honestly. It's pretty it's good. Got some. Yeah, I mean some hats. I, I can't paint he, a hat. Props, See, it, props to props to the nine year old. Yeah, it's a pretty decent for nine year old. Yeah, but it's a bullfight scene, so we should probably talk about bullfights for a few minutes <laughs> because it, it's crucial to Pablo's upbringing. The bullfight arena in Malaga was called the Malagueta, and it held over nine thousand spectators. In like Greece and whatnot, there was like ten. You know, like I think those places held like. A, a lot bigger. You know what I mean? Like, for sure. But this is like a very small town in Spain. It's got a 9,000 seat arena for bullfighting. Okay. So it's, it's popular. It bullfighting too, they have to, it, it has to be like above It's got to be, it's got to be. What year is this though? Uh, 1890 maybe. Okay. Eight, 1891. Yeah, all right. All right. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, disparage okay. the size of a, a bullfighting <laughs> ring as 9,000 being small. You know, they probably had some like 2,000 overflow. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Room, oh, I'm know. sure. The popularity for of the bull, real big bullfighting, but the big ones, yeah, when they're the top guys coming to town. The popularity of bullfighting was enormous at the time and was wrapped up in the cultural identity. Mm-hmm. All of the men when town would go to see the bullfights, they'd get red wine drunk all day. It was their national support, so you know there's a ton of gambling. Prostitutes would be there because that's where all the men in town were, right. and that means statistically you're also getting a couple of pimps on hand. It's well, like Vegas. It's it's Vegas. Bullfighting bulls are specifically bred for aggression and to have large upper bodies. So they look like those big dudes at the gym who don't do leg days. Well, A, this would imply that I go to a gym. (laughs) (laughs) So... I don't know what you're talking about, we, but, but you I, live in but you live in LA. I can imagine you yeah. live in LA. So I can imagine what guy. you're talking about. I just wanted to. I didn't want to give the impression. Overpromised yeah, everybody. Give the impression. That's yeah. fair. The bulls can top out at over 1,500 pounds, and the bull and a matador face off for three rounds or tercios. The first stage is called the tercio de varas. The matador observes how the bull is moving with an initial wave of the cloak. The matador then performs a series of passes with the cloak. And the bull tries to charge the matador, and he waves the cape over the bull and all these patterns. Uh, apparently, the most common form of a pass is called the Veronica. 
Who knew? There's there's a curiosity in me that thinks about bullfighting, and you, like you read about it when you're in high school and stuff, like Hemingway novels and stuff like that. But like, well, we're gonna get into the real bullfighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it creeps me out because it's just like a live animal, you know. This, this, and is, I love sports. This is way worse than you think. Isn't it? It's gonna be worse than you imagine. But this, you made it sound just now so eloquent and like. Like there's some kind of like mystical and it's a dance yeah, and it's a very it sensual. Like well, it's Malaga. We're in the scene. Yeah, right, right, right. Then two picadors enter the arena. They're men on horses who carry huge lances, and the bulls are taught to gore the horses while the picador stabs a mound of muscle called the Murillo on the bull's neck multiple times to cause a loss of blood and weaken the bull. And a lot of horses are dying at this point because the bulls are just goring the horses. Ew. Eventually, and there's just like. Horse, dead horses on the ground, or what? I think they usually bleed out and die after. And then the dude's on top of it, but doesn't the horse fall on top of? No, it? the horses are taught to be very stoic and take the take the goring from the bulls. Uh-huh. No, it's a huge bummer. Jesus Christ! They gave the horses paddings. This was, a, this was sports. This is national sport. National sport. And you brought your kid here all the time. <laughs> the horses were eventually giving padding in 1930 because progress. Each time the bull tries to lift his neck and charge the idiot stabbing it, it tears the wounds, and then the wounds bleed more and the horse weakens more. The the picador's goal is to keep the bull annoyed enough to want to charge, but weaken the neck and its head so its horns get lower after each charge. So it's you're you're charging, but your your neck is down and you're almost charging with your shoulder blades. I'm just thinking you you wouldn't want in you wouldn't do this in front of a crowd because it would make the bullfighter seem. Uh, less capable of taking down the bull, which is, it, it's like they're showing you how the sausage is made. It's not, see, that's the thing about bullfighting. It's don't think of bullfighting as a sport between equals. Think of bullfighting as a dance where the matador has a very artistic kill. Ugh, yeah, God, well, I don't want to see that. Well, we're going to get to the second stage, which is called the Tercio de Banderillas. At that point, three banderieros enter the ring. These are cool guys with barbed sticks called banderias, and they're also decorated in local flag colors. And they hook the barbs onto the bull's neck and shoulders. That's just freaking out. This causes further loss of blood, weakens the neck even more, but also gives it a really cool flag decoration. I mean, it's just just torturing an animal in front of people. You're straight up torturing this animal. The matador then performs more passes with his cape. At this point, the bull is charging, but it's so weak that it's charging with its head down. The final stage is called the Tercio de Muerte. The matador enters alone in the ring with a small red cape called the muleta and a sword. The matador dedicates the bull to a pretty lady in the crowd, Mm. then distracts the bull with a complex series of passes with the muleta. Then the bull makes its final charge. But the head is so low from all the blood loss and the pain in its neck that he's really charging shoulder blades first where the head was. Mm And then the matador thrusts the sword between the shoulder blades, trying to pierce the heart and kill the bull instantly. Mm-hmm. But that rarely happens so, so cleanly. Yeah. If the bull doesn't die, the crowd gets incredibly irate and starts to boo and jeer, and everybody's freaking out. So it's like the, the, the matador's art, art form is to like... It's the, it's the kill. It's the That's kill. the art form. And it's the like mat- get your hit your mark. Exactly. And if you don't do that, everyone's mad because you don't do the art correctly. Uh, so and the bull starts to suffer. And the matador takes a second sword called the descabello and hacks at the spine to cut the spinal cord. In case. It, to, it, to get the thing from stop freaking out. It's, yeah, you want to make it so it's, If you miss the heart. Though that blow is often fatal, the animal doesn't die instantly. 
If the bull is still thrashing around, then a dagger is used to further d- dig at the spinal cord. Oh, God. And if the bull isn't alive after 15 minutes, they hook it up to donkeys and drag it off to be killed. Jesus Christ. So either the bullfighter is incredibly successful and there's 9,000 people just being whipped up into this collective frenzy of bloodlust and death, or the matador screws up and you see him hack at it with sores and the bull gores the bullfighter to death sometimes and you brought your child to this. <laughs> you brought a you brought a, a little child. And the kid is just oh, oh the eyes are just like I, I our generation will never do this. Oh my god. <laughs> we must outlaw this horrible treatment of animals. Before we get back to Pablo. No, the, keep going on the bullfight. Yeah, I'm sick well, I, to my I did, stomach. I right did now. a little research on the effects of bullfighting on children. Most really? because, yeah, is there so, there's actual it, yeah, I have severe adult ADHD and I get distracted, but also it instinctively doesn't feel like a thing you should take your kids to. No, of course not. I mean, this is, but the, it, it's so amazing because it is like gladiator fights or like bull baiting. Well, that's or where it comes from. Or, it originally, it derives from gladiator fights. Yeah, I mean, I think the fascinating, it's not that it exists, it existed, but it's the fascinating thing is that it existed for so long that. It's still of, going on. Does it still it's go still on? It's still going on. To, to the extent of like this. Yeah, it's still going on. Jesus. But they, the, that's not something you can do in, like, a small circle. It's not like No, it's still huge. Wrestling. No, it's still huge. You can go to... You can, you can go, go to a bullfight in Seville. You can go to the Malagueta in Malaga and go to the same bullfighting arena, watch a bullfight. That, 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 that they... That, that they're and talking And they do about the here. same thing. They, the only, they, horses have pads now, so the horses don't die. But the bull... Well, yeah, no, the bull's done. Yeah, oh. you go into it knowing that something's going to get murdered. It's a snuff film. You're oh, going to watch an yeah, animal yeah. snuff film. I don't know. That's not my thing, but... I characterize the research into this wanna, yeah, yeah. as falling into two categories. The first camp is more of a psychological anecdote of childhood experiences that were obtained during therapy sessions. Wait, this, wait what is this? So this like? comes from a 2008 article written by a psychiatrist named J.P. Richier. Who they were like, we gra- gathered a bunch of kids who went to bullfights as children, and uh, adults who went to bullfights. And he started to catalog because they all had consistent stories and they all said they felt the same way or had the same trauma from it. So he was like, okay, I have to collect this and, and write some sort of retrospective on this. Interesting. This is probably more of a qualitative look at common experiences rather than a full-fledged statistical study. Okay. As the bullfight is occurring, as a child, the patients remembered feeling the following. Surprise when violence started and blood was spread everywhere. Intense feelings of injustice. Feelings of anger and rage, crying and or screaming. Childhood. Nailed it. As for the long-term effects, long-term psychological trauma, weakening of moral judgment and empathy, Mm. and the children become accustomed to violence and can react apathetically when confronted with violence. There is a senselessness to this kind of violence. Kill a cow to feed a family. Or personally, I understand, but like it's the sport. Fr- it's the it's, sport aspect yeah, of it. Gross and the, about the fact it, that there's I mean? it doesn't seem to be a, an end game. That's at least somewhat no. And then the the horses too, and just like the, I would only go with the gore if the bull gored the matador. If I can guarantee that would happen, that would be the only but thing I, I would find even, interesting. Because I don't want to see that either. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, ideally, no one would go to this. Yeah, I mean that's. I, I guess I can't criticize another culture, but. It feels excessive. Now I'm so bummed. I know, know? It's a kind of a bummer. <laughs> the second area of study, which is my personal favorite, I would call the clockwork orange approach. Mm-hmm. In 2004, the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Wales, Swansea, and the Department of Clinical Psychology at the Complutense University of Madrid mm-hmm. teamed up in this like, Crosby, Stills, and Nash science supergroup. <laughs> 
And they gathered up 240 kids between the ages of 8 and 12, 120 boys, 120 girls, and they made these children watch vicious bullfight videos, sometimes with festive or aggressive dialogues. Whoa. I repeat, this is in 2004. Oh. Yeah. You, some of it, hey, you know what? Some people have to take the hit for science. Some oh, for sure. I, I, I imagine they show them one of those botch matches where it's some incompetent matador trying to cut the spinal cord with the whole crowd's freaking out. And they go, I'm doing my best. This thing won't die. And of course, the study showed negative effects with the trauma and increased aggression yeah, being Jesus. primarily found in boys. Yeah. Now, now we have two ingredients to the soup of Picasso's formative years, a sense of entitlement with women, and a desensitization to violence. And a, a, a society that completely uh, accepts this as the norm. Accepts it and pushes it. Pushes it, yeah. Pushes it. I mean, this They're is... The, this is the capital of machismo. They think this is great. As far as the Ruiz family knows, what they're doing to Pablo is like, they, they couldn't be better parents. They could, they're parents of the year. yeah. At this point, the Ruizes were legitimately broke. Jose was aboard a family of five as an assistant art teacher, and that wasn't cutting it, and he was groveling to his brother Salvador for help, but Salvador wasn't really in a position to support Jose's entire family, too. So he pulled some strings and got Jose a higher-paying job in A Coruña, which is a city that is way less fun than it sounds. And unable to say no financially, the Ruizes were off to A Coruña. Acruña is in the northern part of Spain. It's a direct shot south of Ireland in that shitty part of the Atlantic. It's tons of wind and rain. It's so they go from, like, sunny all the time to, like, uh, windy, rainy, the green. They went from... If Malaga was Antonio Banderas, Acruña is a guy going, like, oh, three of me kids died this week, but I had the most delicious meat pie. Like, it's that kind of... It's like if you lived in Miami your entire life and your little brother makes you move to Detroit. Which <laughs> yeah, is okay, fine. Yeah. It's, it's a fine city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just different. Jose collapsed emotionally at the move and considered it a Napoleonic exile. He uh, is a very dramatic... He's a little bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a total disaster for Jose as soon as the family got to Acarunia. Wasn't a good fit at the new school, hated the weather, there weren't very good prostitutes, and he constantly was miserable and moped around. Horrible prostitutes. The prostitutes were not They good. argue with you there. They were like shitty, like... They want you to make... You, 1840s <laughs> English-style prostitutes. It was different. What is this? What kind of prostitutes are these? I come from the south of Spain. I'm going to spread me legs for you. But little Pablo, Pablo loved Acruña. Uh -huh. He's been under constant supervision by that entire extended family of aunts, cousins, his mother. But they're all back in Malaga, except for his mom. But she's got Lola and Conchita to raise in her own. And Jose is fucking useless. Mm -hmm. So now 11 years old, Pablo has his first taste of consistent freedom. Several decades later, he would reminisce about those times. Mm. So he's 11 years old. He's like, I'm on my own. Finally, people he's not in his own yet, but people aren't watching him closely. Yeah, he can now be a kid. Quote, my friends and I spent our time chasing stray cats with shotguns. Once on Calle de Damas, we caused a real massacre. The alarm which spread amongst the neighbors was phenomenal. 
This escapade was reported and afterwards I was supervised more closely. It was great fun. And if one of those childhood friends is still alive, he'll remember it. Unquote. Mm. You're not supposed to shotgun cats. No, I mean, that's a sign of the time. And if you think it's hilarious, this is maybe that diminished sensitivity to violence that the science supergroup and Richier talked about. We maybe are starting to see that he thinks it's okay to... Kill cats? To kill a bunch of cats. I mean, I feel like that killing cats was is nothing new. It, people people stopped killing cats like 10, eight, 15 eight years days ago. ago. <laughs> yeah, like four days. <laughs> what are you no, doing tonight? They, they, I th- feel like people stopped killing cats like in maybe like the 2000s. Well, even culturally, I, mean, I know a lot of cultures still do- dog cats, but you don't go around for fun and shotgun a bunch of them. Yeah, I mean, people did. You can. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I never thought that way, but you know. Conchita, on the other hand, was not handling Acronia so well. She contracted diphtheria and died. Oof. Not quickly. Oh, no. No, there's no good way for a seven-year-old to go out, but diphtheria oh. is tough. Oh, no. Tell, tell me about it. Symptoms include bluish skin, difficulty swallowing, difficulty breathing, skin lesions, foul-smelling and blood-stained nasal discharge, oh. sore throat, abnormally swollen lymph nodes, destroyed healthy tissue and respiratory systems no. that cause a thick gray coating that can cover like, in the inside. Gray. In the inside, it's a weird. If you look up diphtheria pictures, it's horrible. And they had diphtheria for a long time. There was a lot of diphtheria. Di- diphtheria f- a lot of kids died from diphtheria. Yeah, but up until like 1980? Into 2000. Into st- I mean, there's a vaccine. Well, there's a vaccine, but it's just a matter of who have that, who has access to it. Yeah. Okay. But it was his sister's death that opened Pablo's mind to mortality. The <laughs> idea that the, the just the idea of death started to terrify him. It's a heavy thing for a kid to encounter, especially one that was not so peaceful. Mm-hmm. It was also around this time that Pablo started to understand how poor his family really was. Mm. Though they had a high social status, they couldn't afford to bury Conchita, and Pablo. Was, intimately felt that embarrassment. They couldn't even afford to bury their daughter. But they were giving this kid, like, uh, art lessons and and having him, like, be constantly... Uh, like, Pablo seemed like he was a rich kid. He, he acted like a rich kid, but it was one of those families that seemed wealthy, but when it came down to an expense like burying a daughter... Burying a daughter, they couldn't, couldn't do, it. do it. Couldn't do it. It was also around that time that Pablo started to take art classes independent of his father's lessons. Hmm. And Pablo also immediately became aware of how inept his father was once he started to receive those real art education, hey, those, those art go. lessons. Uh, I think it was also somebody was teaching him to, to paint something besides pigeons and doves. <laughs> right, right, right. Pablo had Jose and Lola sit as models for his charcoal work, sketches, paintings, things like that. Lola sat because she was being bossed around by her big brother, mm-hmm. and Jose sat because he had absolutely nothing else to do. After the death of Conchita, a complete lack of rapport with anyone in town, Jose prepared to move the family to Barcelona, where he took a higher-paying but lower-level teaching job at La Yotia Art School. Mm-hmm. Considered a professional failure, but necessary to move the family just because it was the only way he could afford. I yeah, mean, you're affording yeah. four mouths now, but yeah, it's still expensive. With his new art education, Pablo easily passed Jose in skill. One time, Jose was working on a bird, of course, and he couldn't finish it, and Pablo finished it for him, and Jose had such an overwhelming sense of failure that his little son could paint better than he did that he vowed to never paint again, which is, gets kind of a 
Super dramatic. It's a little dramatic, and also you don't get good stories though if people aren't like completely dramatic. Like they're like, "I'll never paint again." Yeah. You know, and he's, like he's also he's going full Earl Woods now. Like he's totally putting everything into his kid becoming this art guy. Yes, right, 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 right. Yeah. Now Pablo's art skill hit a different trajectory. Whether it was the onset of puberty, his father quitting art like a little bitch, or the death of his sister, Pablo was growing up and is showed in his art was less childish, more self-assured. When you're young and you paint a person, you I mean, you saw from the Picador, those are people. When you're older, you paint bodies. Hmm. It gets different. It has a different tone to it. It has a different level of skill to it. And Pablo showed an inherent humanism in his art, and it started to become more and more infused with lust and sex. Sure. At 13, he passed Layota entrance exams and was placed into the advanced level six years younger than the average student. And he was immediately fascinated with the idea that he has access to live models, no longer needs to paint his family. Pablo was extremely charming and had no problem making friends in Barcelona. And he's like 13? He's 13 at this time. Yeah. At 13, he became very good friends with a 19-year-old student named Manuel Payaris. Payaris was the son of a farmer who was described as a born disciple an ardent womanizer and a misogynist. I personally think it would be weird to be 19 and hang out with a 13-year-old, but I also think that it was probably different times. It seems like Pablo was, like, smarter than he was the a, average yeah. artist, you know? Pyrus and Pablo became instant friends, and Pyrus was more of a big brother figure, introduced him to Barcelona's cafes, bars, nightlife, yeah. all that I'm fun stuff. I'm not going to judge that relationship. No. Well, the next year, Pyrus introduced Pablo to the Berizino, which is Barcelona's red light district. Oh, okay, maybe. Maybe we can say, <laughs> yeah, we can't speak too soon on this yeah, stuff, because yeah, right, it's, right. it's always going to get worse. Right, right. And this is where a 14-year-old Pablo learned exactly why his dad loved going to prostitutes. Because they're... It's great. You have sex with somebody, and then you can just leave and go create art without being bothered. He thought this was the most amazing thing. And prostitutes also came to serve another purpose because it was very difficult to convince women to sit for an artist because there was a presumption that artists were always having sex with their models. Oh. Which is why it's... If so you he did... He just kept that That was just a little, little, little something in the back pocket. So he could get them to sit and sleep with them. And have sex with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pablo became... Uh, or Pablo began an adolescence that he could only dream of. He's now 15 years old, living in Barcelona with a city infused with art techniques from all over the world, learning art all day, and then rewarding himself with prostitutes at night. God. At 15. 15. Pablo also began, I would say, consistently having sex with, rather than dating, a girl named Rosita Del Oro, mm -hmm. who he met through Friends of Pyaris. So he's 15 years old. Is she, uh, she a prostitute or no? She... Everyone thought she was a prostitute because he treated her like one, but she was actually a very famous circus horse performer. Oh. Okay. In the equestrian way, not the Mr. Hand sort of way. And they would continue. Right, 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 yeah, right. it's totally different. They yeah, would totally different, totally different. They would continue to have sex until she suffered a terrible horse-related accident. No way. Also, what happened to her? not a Mr. Hand situation. I think it was yeah, so, she, she was a... she just got thrown off a horse, and oh. I think she like hurt her neck or her back. And that's the last we hear of her. No. Jose would try and meddle with Pablo's art education as much as possible, and he more and more saw Pablo's career as an extension of his own. Oh, yeah. And now Jose, he's low-handed. Now, he's now exact, it's yep. a low-hand job. So Jose rented a studio space for Pablo to paint, and then Pablo would get pissed because he was just being criticized by this talentless hack, and they would always argue. Right. 
Pablo realized two things. One, his father was a talentless loser, who he was constantly embarrassed of, and he was always upper class, but constantly poor. And he realized that his Tio Salvador was controlling the family by dang dangling money with caveats. He hated him for that. They re realized that Salvador was the one who was getting Jose jobs. He was the reason why they could afford to have food on the table, and he and he, he resented his he resented his uh, his, his uncle. uncle. He resented be, his be, uncle because because Jose was a piece of shit. I think he he resented his uncle because he was constantly at the whim of his uncle. Like yeah, it was yeah, oh yeah. he always had to answer to his uncle because in nineteen eighty er, in eighteen ninety seven rather Pablo was accepted into the San Fernando Academy of Art in Madrid, which mm -hmm. is the best art school in Spain. This is huge. But this he is needed, a, he needed exactly Tio. exactly Jose couldn't afford to send him. Tio Salvador stepped in and paid the tuition. But now he owed him. Well, it's starting to look like none of this is out of the goodness of his heart, but the way it was described was Salvador is almost purchasing shares in Pablo's future. It, it's one of those things where it's just a, a mean to an end. It's, it's an investment. But he, what's so what's the debt that he's going to owe Tio in it'll, the future? It'll, it'll just be, it'll be one of those, I put you through art school... You, you, owe give, me. you owe me a bunch of paintings, or you you should put me in control of your your management. Right. In the summer before Pablo left for Madrid, he spent a few months back in Malaga having sex with his cousin Carmen. This was the I'm not sure what side the cousin is on. I'm taking a little bit of liberties here. So the way Richardson phrased it, he was a little careful about it. He said it was phrased as courted. Picasso courted Carmen. Mm -hmm. But the way we, I mean, what we know about Picasso at that time, he, he, would, he wasn't everything. courting anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he was, he was courting you as hard as possible. Yeah. That was the courting. And it was entirely supported by the entire family, which is yeah, disgusting. Yeah, right, 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 right. And this is the, I think, I think Richardson was a little careful with how he phrased that because he knew as of this being written in like, what, 1980, that that was not as cool anymore. So this is the one instance where I was like, oh, you could have been a little more explicit about what yeah, was going on. Yeah, but he knew he was friends with him, so he exactly. paint him in too bad of a... And as happens with most 16-year-old boys, Pablo was quickly bored of Carmen and was anxious to get away from his father in Salvador. And he had the opportunity in the San Fernando Academy to do that. And with that, Pablo set off on his own for Madrid. And that's where we're going to leave it for us. What? Going off to college, baby. Oh, my God. Pablo in college. So. Crazy. What do you think so far? Recap. We have uh, a deadbeat dad who never really wanted to be a dad, but was forced into the situation because he didn't have any male heirs. He gets a male heir. He produces this child that is uh, treated like Jesus Christ. It's like the second come. I mean, there, this, this is a child god in this family. Yeah, and then he becomes like somewhat of an art god. I mean, he, I know I, I I'm he's on the way. It's, yeah. I mean, he's going to the best art school in Spain. And at, he is already established. Age. He's already confident. He's he's had sex a lot in his life. He's had a lot. Of, it's he he's lived a lifetime from the oh, age he's of a, thirteen. He's a forty-five to, year old to, man to sixteen. Yeah. And this guy lives to be like 85 years old. You right? think he's with 90-something? He dies at 90. And we're at 16. We're at 16 years old. Yeah. We're at a cliffhanger. We're at a cliffhanger, so we're going we're gonna to hang out until, um, until episode two next week. Oh we're going to see what, what Picasso gets up to in Madrid. Okay. See you there. All right, everybody.
Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Artholes Podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us five stars on iTunes and a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening.